0: For nearly a decade now, and I'm going to butcher this name, so if you know how to actually pronounce this, you can come and tell me after church, right? But for nearly a decade now, the Burj Khalifa um, has held the record, that's right, okay, there we go, Jada's confirming, the Burj Khalifa has held the record as the largest building in the world. The Burj Khalifa is in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and it stands 2,722 feet tall. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around what exactly that means. So I did the math on it, and that means that that building stands a little bit over a half a mile tall. Still having a little bit of a difficulty understanding exactly what that means, I did some quick research, and my kids, when we go to Nashville and they look out at the skyline, what's every kid's favorite building when they come to Nashville? The Batman building, right? The at and I remember when that was finished, and we've called it the Batman building ever since. And now they've got the R2-D2 building right next to it in Nashville, right? But there's that iconic Batman building in Nashville. It would take four of those Batman buildings stacked on top of each other, and they still wouldn't be as tall as the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Same with the Ark in St. Louis. It would take four stacked on top of each other, and it still wouldn't be as tall. We are capable of incredible things as human beings. And to think that all started with a brick. At the very beginning of the world, as human beings were pulling themselves together and they were beginning to process their world and, and how it is that they might live in this world, they invented this thing called a brick which allowed them to then move from this nomadic lifestyle exposed to the elements to build cities and buildings that would guard and protect them. God gifted us with the creative, the creativity and the ingenuity that allows us to overcome those obstacles. But if we're not careful, these very gifts that God has given to us to live our lives well for God can become obstacles in and of themselves. Take, for example, what happened with that first brick. When you go back to Genesis chapter 11, and the men and the women who are gathered together say that let us make bricks. And then in verse 4, they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See, the people in that day came to rely upon their own industriousness. Their own ability, their own creativity, their own talents, this gifts that God has given to them. So they gathered together to erect this edifice to themselves. Defying God's expressed will and design for humanity from Genesis chapter 1, that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now they want to build a city for themselves lest they be scattered across the earth. And we are not far removed from those rebellious ancestors because the truth of the matter is left to ourselves, this is exactly what we would do. We would take the very gifts that God has given to us and use them to build edifices to ourselves in our own name instead of building the kingdom of God. But building competing kingdoms is not the only way that we're like them. Most often what we see and what the passage of Scripture that we're going to share or study this morning is that we oftentimes overestimate our own abilities. We try to live for ourselves, misusing the talents and gifts that God has given to us, thinking that we can do this in our own might, in our own strength, in our own way. Think about it, how often do we look to and trust in ourselves or our own skills? How often do we pick up a self-help book as opposed to spending time in prayer with the Lord? How often do we as, as an institution often run to the next gimmick and strategy and program and pattern of ministry and trust in that when God calls us instead to trust in a person? Just as the ascension of Jesus Christ is essential to our lives as a believer's, So the descension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself is essential to our lives as believers. The Holy Spirit is essential for us to live the lives that God has called us to live, and dependence upon him and knowledge of him, relationship with him, is absolutely necessary. Look with me, if you will, in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Luke writes this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues, other tongues, as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. Holy Spirit I thank you for your power and your presence. I thank you for your mission and your ministry. I thank you for the promises that we have which you are the down payment and the guarantee of. I pray that this morning you would move us to a deeper affection for you and for your ministry. Holy Spirit forgive us for the ways that we so easily neglect you. We attempt to live this life in our own strength by our own ingenuity instead of simply relying on you to do in and through us what we could never hope to do on our own. I pray that this morning would be the beginning of a new stage and age in my heart and in my life and in our life collectively as a church where we would no longer turn from you, but we would turn to you, to trust in you, to do in and through us what you promise you'll do. So guard us and guide us. Fill me with wor- very words that you would have spoken this morning, that you might be glorified, magnified, and lifted high, and that we might be better motivated and equipped to live a life that you would so desire for us to live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Holy Spirit is essential to our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. In this passage of Scripture, we find the disciples most likely— um, all 120 that are referenced in um, chapter 1, gathered together. If you'll remember, we talked about with Jesus after the resurrection, He spent 40 days with His disciples instructing and teaching them. At the end of those 40 days, He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And as He ascended, if you look back in chapter 1, He tells His disciples to wait, to hold their positions in Jerusalem until they receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So, being obedient to the command of Jesus Christ, they return to Jerusalem, and ten days later on Pentecost, that promise of Jesus Christ is fulfilled as the Holy Spirit comes in power. As I said earlier, it's easy for us oftentimes, especially in the quote-unquote conservative Baptist circles, to shy away from Pentecost lest we become those crazy charismatic people. And so inevitably what happens, though, when we do that is we end up neglecting the very person that God has placed in our lives to help us grow and live and empower us to do the very things that God wants us to do. We live powerless lives when we neglect the Holy Spirit. And though there are a lot of questions about the ministry of the Holy Spirit that I'll be honest, even as your pastor, I don't completely understand humbly submitting before you, I don't get it all. And so there are a lot of questions and debates between true, genuine, Bible-believing Christians over the person or the ministry of the Holy Spirit and specifically the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so this isn't going to be a deep dive into the manifestations of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit. Instead, as there are a lot of things that we can disagree on, and there are a lot of questions this morning, I want to focus on four things that we can draw out of this passage of Scripture about the Holy Spirit. And the first one is that we see in this passage of Scripture the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you have a pet peeve? Something that just annoys the fire out of you that other people seem to always do? I have a few of them. Um, one is I, I can't stand to hear other people chew. I don't care if I, I can chew, but if I hear other people chewing, it's worse than nails on a chalkboard for me. For my older brother, it's the sound of styrofoam rubbing up against one another. He has to call somebody if he orders a TV. He has to call somebody to come in and, and take the equipment out of the box room because he just can't stand the sound of the styrofoam coming out of the boxes, right? We all have those quirks. A few things that are specific to me, though, some, some words that just drive me nuts and phrases that drive me nuts when people use them is uh, people when they say, I could care less. That's wrong. If you could care less, that means that you care. What you want to say is, I couldn't care less. And it drives me nuts. Biblically speaking, one that drives me nuts is when I hear people refer to the last book of the Bible as Revelations revelations. There is not an S on the end of that. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a series. It is one revelation to John of the person of Jesus Christ. And the other one that drives me nuts is when I hear people refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. And it's simple. We fall into that. Maybe it's the way that we were raised and we just talk about. But it, when we refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, it reveals how little we understand about what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not some impersonal force that Luke Skywalker uses in some way that gives us some special powers or whatever else. It's not some theological concept for us to understand. Instead, the Holy Spirit is a person The Scriptures reveal to us that he has personal traits. The Holy Scripture, Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 2, God has revealed to us things through the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thought of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit has an intellectual understanding. The Spirit has the ability to discern your thoughts and my thoughts, your wants and my desires. The Spirit has the ability to understand the very depths of God. The Spirit is omniscient. Impersonal forces don't think and know things. The Holy Spirit also has a will a determination to accomplish things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Speaking there about the traditional sp- or spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit has a will, a determination, a desire, but even greater than that, the Holy Spirit has emotional capacity because Paul warns us in Ephesians chapter 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Impersonal forces and things don't feel, they don't think, they don't desire, they don't intend. The Holy Spirit is a person, and this particular person is God. The Spirit is God, and it's clear from Even this passage of Scripture, we don't have to go very far to realize that it is Luke's intention for us to understand that what happened here, this Holy Spirit that comes, is God himself. If you'll remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Jesus Christ and Him being lifted up in a cloud coming to take Him, that that cloud isn't some cumulus rainstorm that's up in the clouds as He travels miles into the air and disappears into the cloud, but is instead a manifestation of God's glory, the the Shekinah glory of God, and what is this big theological term called a theophany. And a theophany is just our term that we use for any time that God manifests himself in some personal, knowable way in throughout the Old Testament. And we see here these same signs of a theophany take place when the Holy Spirit comes in wind and in fire. You can go and you can look in the Old Testament and there you will find that where and when oftentimes God manifests himself that before the Lord goes wind. Just look at Elijah when Elijah's up on the mountain and he's having his big sulk fest. Remember that? Oh, here I am. Woe is me. I'm the only one. I'm all alone. God, just kill me because I'm the last faithful man in the world. And God comes in and God presents himself, manifests himself to Elijah, ultimately in a still small whisper, but before that, there is a windstorm and an earthquake that comes before the Lord. Go and read the Psalms and, you, and even the prophets, and you will find repeatedly that God is the one who rides on the storms as the wind comes before him in his judgment and in his presence. But not only wind, think about the theme of fire throughout the Old Testament, Think about the wilderness generation as they are leaving Egypt. And it is the the pillar of fire that is God's presence that goes before them to lead the way. Even before that, when God meets with Moses, how does he present himself to Moses? Through the burning bush, right? Right? And this presence of fire. And when he descends on Mount Sinai to give the law as it's clouded with this glory cloud of God, the people look upon it and Mount Sinai looks as though it's on fire. Wind and fire throughout Scripture are often accompanied by the presence of God himself. A manifestation of God. And so when the Holy Spirit comes with this mighty rushing wind that sounds like a tornado as it fills this place. Have you ever been close enough to a tornado? Were you here in 1999 when that tornado ripped through downtown? I lived at exit 11 and it hit downtown and it woke me up. The noise was so loud. And it says right here, this mighty rushing wind comes and fills this whole room. And then this, what appears to be this this source of fire comes down and divides as tongues of fire on these people. Luke wants us to see that this is a manifestation of God's presence himself. This is the person who is God. This person who descended on the believers at Pentecost and who's remained with us even to this day is no new person but this ancient person, which is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who was present at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 as the Spirit of God hovered over the unformed world, over the the chaos of the deep who has been with God and present as God from eternity past. And now this Holy Spirit is God. And since he is God, we owe him our affection. We owe him our allegiance. It's not inappropriate to talk to and speak to and pray to the Holy Spirit who is a person and who is God. And where and when we have lived lives that have neglected his person Where and when we have grown up in traditions that have turned away from the Holy Spirit, we must understand that he is a person that we can reconcile with and rectify with, and we must come back in repentance and, and confession in the ways that we tend to neglect him collectively and individually. When we try to go about our lives in our own strength, in our own power, in our own might, in our own way, we turn from the Holy Spirit when we try to use Him and approach Him as a tool and an instrument that we have the ability to command the Holy Spirit to do anything, we have offended the person of the Holy Spirit, and we must repent of that. And we must position ourselves as those who confess, Holy Spirit, you are a person, and I want to know you and present ourselves before Him. Luke doesn't just want us to see the person of the Holy Spirit. He also wants us to see the presence of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever watched Price is Right and some of those other game shows? People show up with a hope and and a desire that they will hopefully get their name called, their chair called, or whatever it is, and then they hopefully get to participate in what's going on, and then hopefully, maybe they'll possibly win something if they get called to the front. Maybe they'll be lucky enough to not merely be a participant, but be a recipient of some grand prize. Until Oprah Winfrey changed all that. Remember the famous thing where Oprah Winfrey showed up and everybody in the audience all of a sudden got a car? Everybody gets a car. You get a car and you get a car and you get a car. And now every other talk show host is obligated to give everybody in the audience something when they give them anything. That's a really interesting picture for us to understand possibly the difference between the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Because the truth of the matter is this person who arrived at Pentecost, it's not the first time that he came into the world. He has always been here. The difference between the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is the way that he manifested his ministry. Instead, he would come upon certain individuals for a certain period of time. Think about Samson, for example. That if you go and you read the Judges, there are multiple times in the account of Samson that the Scripture writer tells us that the Holy Spirit rushed upon Samson and blessed him with this momentary strength to fight on behalf of the people, right? It's the Holy Spirit who came upon Saul when Saul was anointed, but then at his disobedience, the Spirit of God left Saul, And then came and and was rested upon David and stayed upon David. We see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament coming and going, equipping people for certain purposes. The Holy Spirit descends on the two in the book of Exodus that are specifically gifted with creative ability to create all of the things for the tabernacle. They're gifted with creative abilities to to sew and to craft things out of gold and to make all of the things that God has given to them. The Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit seems to go. But when the Holy Spirit descends here on Pentecost, as all 120 of the infant church are gathered together in this place, this Holy Spirit descends and then divides. And these individual tongues of fire manifested in the place, go and they rest upon the disciples. All of them are then filled with the Holy Spirit, men and women alike. Peter is in the if you read on in chapter Two as Peter begins to proclaim and begins to to preach and answer the questions that people have about what does this mean and maybe they 're drunk and everything else. Peter emphasizes when he ties this as a fulfillment of the prophecy from Joel, Peter emphasizes that God promises that on your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams even on my male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and in in the presence of God then indwells each and every individual believer. It's not some special few. It's not some elite individuals. The Holy Spirit comes upon the church of Jesus Christ and fills the church of Jesus Christ each and every one. We have to understand when we see this, That God is with us. This person that is the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of God's presence for you and I individually, for each and every life, for each and every heart. Yes, he comes upon the church as a whole, but it's a church of individuals who are each and every one devoting themselves to Jesus Christ, surrendering to him. And so the Holy Spirit comes not to adopt this group, but to adopt each and every individual of that group and fill them with his very presence, to fill them with the presence of God himself. And this is the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ not that God just gets to, to bless us in some periodic way, but God himself chooses to so relate to us that he fills us from the inside out, that he transforms us from the inside out, such that there is no place that we can go that God is not with us as we are each and every one filled with the Holy Spirit. And So we must each and every one surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ. No matter what your background is, No matter who there is in your life or how often you have arrived at church or anything else, the the God is a personal God who saves individuals and fills them with his presence. So we see the person of the Holy Spirit. We see the presence of the Holy Spirit, but we also see the power of the Holy Spirit. I was trying to to figure out how I could best get to uh, individuals, in um, hospitals and stuff during the pandemic. And I found out that our hospital allows me as a, as a minister to go in and get a special badge that allows me to access um, into the room. And I can, I can show them this badge and it, it shows that I'm a, a clergy member. And praise the Lord, it hasn't happened yet, but I, I hope that the day that I show up and I maybe have left that badge somewhere, that I'm still able to get where I need to go But it makes it a whole lot easier when I have the necessary credentials with me to be able to get where I need to go to accomplish what it is that I need to accomplish. When God comes in power and the Holy Spirit's presence is with us, God promises us that by the presence of the Holy Spirit, we would receive power from on high. That's the promise that Jesus gave to his disciples back in chapter 1, as they were commanded to wait, that they weren't supposed to deal with things that were too high for them, that were only for the the understanding and and the will of the Lord, but instead the promise that they would receive the power necessary to be the witnesses that Jesus intended for them to be. And so again, as we meet them in this passage of Scripture, they're waiting upon the arrival of the Holy Spirit that they might be empowered for their mission as witnesses. If they don't have Him, Their testimony and their witness is just a really good story from some interesting men. But it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that empowers our testimony. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit that takes my words and does something supernaturally to them as they rest upon your heart and the hearts of those who are far from God that he might awaken in them new life, that they might respond. The Holy Spirit transforms everything. And as the Holy Spirit comes in this particular passage of Scripture on this particular way, he manifests the power that he gives to these individuals in their ability to speak in other tongues as he chose to provide it for them. There's a lot of question, and I'm sorry, I'm I'm not going to be able to dig into it at this particular point about what tongues throughout Scripture actually are. What's very clear from this passage of Scripture is that these manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit in the speaking of tongues is languages that those that are around them from all over the known world understand. Now, there are some folks that unfortunately try to oversimplify that in our lives and in today and say, well, that is the pattern of all time, and that The speaking of tongues is simply an evangelistic tool that God has given to us. But the unfortunate thing is, this is actually the only time in Scripture that we see the manifestation of tongues used in the purposes of evangelism. The only time. Every other manifestation of the Holy Spirit and tongues coming down, there is no proclamation of the gospel to foreign people. Instead, from this point forward, the manifestation of the speaking in tongues is a show, a declaration of the true presence of the Holy Spirit in power. It's a sign gift given to the people to confirm that the same thing that's going to happen to the Samaritans, the same thing that's going to happen to the Gentiles, is the exact same thing that happened to the Jews, and that God is breaking down these walls. But Paul goes on later on when he begins talking to the Corinthians about the proper use of tongues and everything else, seems to talk about it as though they don't even understand what they're saying. And those that are around them don't understand what they're saying. And there are these instances throughout Scripture where what we see ultimately is that the speaking of tongues is a sign of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Period. And when we try to oversimplify it as simply this evangelistic tool, we miss the purposes of its presence in Scripture. Tongues are complicated which is why I want to focus specifically on on what it is meant to do here, that it is meant to be a supernatural sign of the presence of God beyond just the, um, the arrival of flame and wind. It's a supernatural sign for those that are, in this particular instance, drawn to, to prompt in them a desire to know more. It's this Sound we don 't know whether or not it 's the tornadic sound of the arrival of the Holy Spirit, or if it 's this crowd that 's out speaking in different tongues and everything else that draws them together. it 's just a sound that draws them together, and it 's that sound that then prompts them to ask the question, "What is this all about?" Now Paul later on says, "Be careful because you're babbling in tongues that nobody else can understand can also have the opposite effect, but it just what has the watching world look at you and say you 're crazy and they don 't want anything to do with it. But nevertheless, what we find right here is that the arrival of the Holy Spirit in this ability, in this power to speak in tongues is something that draws everybody together. It is something that allows us to see that it's the power of the Holy Spirit in this particular moment that fulfills the promise of Jesus Christ that their witness would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to transform lives. Right? But beyond just that, We understand that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives can never be simplified and boiled down to just power in evangelism. When we oversimplify this manifestation of the Holy Spirit in tongues to just evangelism, then we limit the Holy Spirit. And that is detrimental to us and to our lives. Instead, what we understand when we get into the rest of Paul, Galatians, if you think back on our walk through the book of Galatians, Paul commands us, invites us, calls us to walk by the Spirit. That we need the Holy Spirit not just for evangelism. We need the Holy Spirit for every element and every aspect of our life as believers in Jesus Christ. We need the Holy Spirit present to be obedient. We need the Holy Spirit present to pray. We need the Holy Spirit present with us in every single aspect of our lives. That's the purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To equip and empower us not just to be witnesses, but to be faithful sons and daughters of God. Period. If we limit the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to evangelism, then we're walking powerlessly in our desire to walk and live for the Lord. But the Holy Spirit is someone who is meant to empower every aspect of our lives. So we must be those who constantly come to him, to ask him for his presence and his power, to do the very things that I know that I can't do. I know that I'll never read my Bible enough. I know that I'll never pray enough. I know that I'll never be good enough. I know that I'll never trust enough. I know that the most basic things that I'm supposed to do as a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm not capable of doing at all. I have to have the help, the help and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have to be people who don't just think about the Holy Spirit once a year and don't just ask the Holy Spirit to be present with us when we're going to share the gospel with somebody else. We have to be people who live in a constant, dependent relationship upon the Holy Spirit for every moment of every day. We also we don't just see the power of the Holy Spirit last thing. We see the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Do you have a friend, or maybe you had somebody growing up who was just a showboat, I remember I tried to play basketball. I told you recently, last week, I was never really the athlete, right? My younger brother was the basketball player, and he loved to show me very frequently how much more athletic he was than I was, as he would embarrass me on the basketball court. And then when he got to be a wrestler, right, and he learned all of the moves that I didn't have any clue of, and even though I was bigger than him and weighed more than him and everything else, my 95-year-old little brother could pin me and embarrass me, right? Have you ever had somebody in your life that's just a showboat constantly showing off, That's not God. And that's not the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the purpose of the Holy Spirit, the purpose of the Spirit coming in power and giving this gift of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and whatever other powers and gifts that He has given to us, the purpose of the Holy Spirit isn't simply to point to Himself. The purpose of the Holy Spirit isn't just to show off. Jesus Christ never performed a miracle just to show everybody how cool He was. He always had a purpose. So when I talk here at the end about the purpose of the Holy Spirit in our lives, I'm not talking about Him as some instrument that we use for a purpose. I'm saying the Holy Spirit as a person has a purpose. And if we want to experience His presence and His power, then the best way for us to enjoy that and to participate in that is if we get on board with His purpose. So often in our lives, we want to try to convince God that our way is the right way. We want to try to convince God to do things our way. And all the time, God is telling us, just like the angel of the Lord told to Joshua, when Joshua said, are you on their side or my side? And God's answer is neither. Because God's on his side with his intentions, his purposes. And we have to be people surrendered to the very purpose of God. And so, as the Holy Spirit comes, He doesn't empower them to speak in foreign tongues just for the sake of showing off. He empowers them with the purpose of, or with the ability to speak in tongues that He might fulfill His purpose, which is to draw men to God and apply the thing, what God had authored and what Jesus accomplished, the Holy Spirit now applies to each and every heart. As people come together, and Peter stands and begins to preach the gospel. And the Holy Spirit works on their lives such at the end of that sermon, 3,000 people are saved. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is not to come and build some edifice for you and for me, not merely to show off. Instead, the mission that He has come to accomplish is the building of an eternal edifice that is beyond us and more powerful than anything that we could ever accomplish on this earth. As the Holy Spirit draws men and women together from every nation as they heard the gospel, as they heard these men and women glorifying God, two things that the Holy Spirit does in this passage of Scripture, specifically as its purpose. One, when these people are speaking in tongues, they are speaking the glories and the praises of God. If a litmus test, brothers and sisters, about whether or not something is truly of the Holy Spirit is what is the subject matter of what is being taught. Because Jesus himself tells us that the Holy Spirit will not point to himself, the Holy Spirit will instead point to Jesus, and Jesus will instead point us to the Father. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to not draw attention and affection to himself, but ultimately be the one who declares the glories of God in Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit says, as these individuals are coming together, they're hearing, verse 11, these disciples, these followers of Jesus Christ, telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God, specifically of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to testify about the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the glory of Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished. But beyond just that, he has come to empower us for the mission of testifying, other to, of, of, testifying of the gospel to the world around us that the church of Jesus Christ might be built up. In this declaration, we have heard in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus' heart is for the nations. As he commands those disciples, you should go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In, here in chapter 2, there are people from All nations that are there and they're hearing in their own tongue of the glories of God. When you get to the end of the book of Acts, what you find out is as you move through the book of Acts that the gospel moves into Samaria, it moves into Judea, it moves beyond Jerusalem, and Paul ends standing at what is essentially the center of the known world in Rome to preach the gospel. The entire book of Acts is an outworking of that command to Jesus, go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That people from every ethnos in the world might be drawn together. In Genesis chapter 11, the people were together, speaking a common tongue. And they determined in their own selves that they had a better way than God, and they were going to build an edifice to themselves that reached to the heavens, that they might make a name for themselves. And God gets a little tongue in cheek with them. They say, "Let us come together that we might build bricks." God says, "Let us come, come, let us go and mess up their languages." If you, uh, in the original Hebrew, it's a play on words. Sound very similar. God comes in with a sense of humor and says, "Oh yeah, you think you think you can touch me? I'll show you." And he confuses their language, and they scatter from one another, and they're isolated from one another, and they're at war with one another. Until this day of Pentecost, when a whole bunch of people from countries all over the world with languages far and wide and different hear this tremendous sound and are drawn together, not in a common language, but to a common person, which is Jesus Christ. And these people that were potentially isolated and at war with one another come together that the Holy Spirit might create a new type of community where men and women from every tribe and nation and tongue gather together for the purpose of declaring the glories of God. And that is not just here in the book of Acts. We're going to see the same thing if you go and you read the book of Revelation. At the end of all things... There will be men and women from every tribe and nation and tongue gathered together at the throne room, worshiping God. If we are going to be a people in relationship with the person that's the Holy Spirit, we have to be a people that are on board with the purpose of the Holy Spirit. We have to be a people whose vision is bigger than my own desires and wants, preferences, and bigger even than my own culture. There's only one place in the Scriptures where we are commanded to compete with one another. And it's when we're commanded to compete to outdo one another in showing honor. We should be a culture of genuine biblical honor in which we look into one another's hearts and lives and we recognize the Christ that is in one another and we bring it out and we hold it out that we might celebrate, not the individual necessarily, but how Christ-like they are as we look here at the purpose of God, that he would draw men and women from every tribe and nation and tongue together in one place for the worship of the Lord. That should so saturate our hearts that we would want the same thing too. And so I want to honor four people right now, publicly from this pulpit. And I know, I'm making you uncomfortable. But Shane, and Faye, Sierra, and Christelle, week after week after week, for five and a half years, you've stood on this stage and led us in worship in a way that's not in competition or contrary to, but different than what you're potentially culturally used to. As you have sacrificed in a way to lead us to the throne of grace and shown us what it is to live for those that are around us. Thank you for setting such a Christ-like example of selflessness as you lead us in a way that's potentially different from your cultural preferences and setting an example for us to set aside all of our petty bickering over hymns versus contemporary when you have set aside cultural background that's far deeper than our personal preference and style of music to lead us to look more like Christ. That is is an evidence of the Christ-likeness in your heart. And I thank you as your pastor. And I pray for the day that this congregation will be a place where we are able to celebrate the differences in one another as God builds something better. You see those men and women so many thousands of years ago, they decided they were going to build something for themselves. But what we find in this passage of Scripture and what we're going to begin looking at next week when we start asking ourselves, what is it that the Holy Spirit's come to build, namely the church, we'll find that the Holy Spirit is a better builder than we could ever possibly be. And he's building something better than we could ever possibly build as he is taking living stones and putting them together into ultimately what will be the eternal temple of God that comes down as a bride adorned for her husband at the end of the book of Revelation to be the place where God dwells for all of eternity. As the Holy Spirit is taking what was begun in Jesus Christ and bringing it to fulfillment. You see, Pentecost was a holiday and a feast 50 days after the day of, of the conclusion of the Passover. Passover. And in the day after the passover the people of Israel would bring the sheaves from the beginning of their harvest the, fir- fir- the first fruits of their harvest and they would harvest and they would wave it before the Lord as an offering 50 days later after the conclusion of the harvest and after all of the wheat had been sifted And after it had been ground and everything was brought to a conclusion, they would take the fruits of their labors and they would bake two loaves of bread. And on Pentecost, they would come into the temple and lay that before the Lord as a completed offering of what they started 50 days earlier. What Jesus Christ accomplished at the resurrection and began, the Holy Spirit is now piecing together and coming and and uniting and building a body that is bigger than we could ever hope or dream. Empowering us to do what only God can do when we are fully surrendered and submitted to him. Something is bigger than our vision, better than our vision, as he builds the church. And I want to be a church that's driven by the purpose of God empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, walking in a relationship with a person of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you want that too. That we would be a church fully filled with the Holy Spirit to accomplish what he's come to accomplish, to be a part and an instrument in the Redeemer's hands that we might bring him glory and honor.